We are not amused. I'm Kelly Anakin, and this is an Up Yours Downstairs Extra. I am finally talking about my obsession with The Royal We by Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan, which, yes, hilarious. We'll get to that. Um, Yeah, this is my first solo thing, I think, ever, podcasting-wise, outside of a couple of maybe commercials or promos or something. So should be interesting. I'm going to try to get through this with minimal editing, uh, in the words of the great L. Ron Hubbard, first draft, last draft, get it out the door. So we'll uh, get started. So I read The Royal We for the first time. I don't even remember what year it was, but I do remember that I loved it so much that I kept booking conference rooms for myself at work so that I could go read more of it during the workday. And I haven't really done that kind of thing. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to read books under my desk during math class because I hated math class. And that led my teacher to tell my parents that uh, the only way to make me better at math would be to make it reading. And maybe I didn't go to a very good elementary school. I don't know. It's too late. It's over and done with. At any rate, I really, really loved this book. And I had been a fan of Cox and Morgan for years. I started reading their website, Go Fug Yourself, I want to say in like 2005, 2006. So they had a blog back when blogs were a thing you could do. And they would essentially critique celebrity fashion, but they did it in a really unique way. It was very tongue in cheek. There were certain celebrities who had these sort of ongoing character arcs, like Britney Spears had an ongoing arc. Uh, Jennifer Lopez had an ongoing arc where Mark Antony was, I'm sorry, Mark Anthony. It's very confusing. I always want to call Mark Anthony, Mark Antony. And Mark Anthony, Mark Anthony. It's very, very confusing. At any rate, Mark Anthony in their whole uh, fantastical world that they made up for JLo was a vampire. And all of that is really hilarious. I'm sure that the archives exist somewhere if you want to go back and read them. They are still doing Go Fuck Yourself. They are still doing Go Fuck Yourself, but they're writing Go Fuck Yourself for The Cut, which is Vulture's sort of fashion uh, counterpart under the umbrella of New York Magazine, which was a really long and convoluted way to go. So they still do, you know, really big coverage on all the red carpet events. And then they do a lot of reporting on the royal family, not just the royal family in Great Britain, but the royal families around the world. So they do uh, Royals Roundup at least once a week. And they had written two novels prior to The Royal We, which I had not read before I read The Royal We. But then after I finished The Royal We and loved that so much, I went and read both of those. The first one is called Spoiled, which is about these half-sisters. And their dad is this like really big Hollywood like action star. And it's too convoluted to get in. We already have a convoluted book that we're going to be discussing here. So I don't want to get too deep into that. And then the sequel I actually preferred over the original Uh, in that sort of cohort or like that world that they created is the story of their, well, one of the sister's friend uh, who's like, you know, the writer. So I identified more with her than the other characters, but it's about her doing writery things. Yes. Oh yeah. Like blogging things, I think, if I recall correctly. Anyway, that one's called Messy 
And it is also great. But again, it is not as great as the Royal We. It's really nutso how much I love this book. I am still amazed by it. I have a number of books that I keep on my phone slash my decrepit Samsung 2 Galaxy tablet. It is... It's not a good tablet anymore. Like I was trying to load up the book, you know, so that I would have it in front of me as I was going through this. And it is just not, it's not working um, the way that it once did. So anyway, but I, the point is I have these books. So, you know, if I just kind of like need something to read and I'll kind of go back to them over and over again. So it's like the Royal We, all of the Hunger Games books, uh, the Secret History I think there's a couple more that I keep on there that I'm just like, oh, I'm bored and I don't feel like, you know, exerting my brain. So I just kind of will go back to these if I'm looking just to kind of cycle something through and uh, take my mind off the day to day. Oh, and I meant to say before, uh, before I even got started with all this, you know, it's been a long time. We shouldn't have left you without a dope pod to laugh to laugh to. Um, the, uh, the year of Tubult, while mostly over is still, you know, there's still some aftershocks happening. Things are good. Like everybody's fine. It's just very emotionally taxing, uh, to have so many life changes happen at once. You know, speaking for myself, for those of you keeping score at home, I had a year of sobriety in August, which is great. Uh, but also still, you know, a lot of work, a lot of, developing new skills and tools and coping mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I don't want to speak for Amy, but I can only imagine that changing one's gender is even more exhausting than getting sober even. So we're both, you know, putting everything together. We both had some travel uh, just to kind of chillax and do some fun stuff. Amy went to Toronto for the film festival that they do there every year. I went to St. Lucia and which is an island in the Caribbean, which no, it was not affected by any hurricanes. Um, and then I was in New York for a little while. I'm about to head up to Seattle. There's a lot happening. We're very busy uh, separately, but do not fret. We are actually meeting very soon to sort of figure out what is next for Up Yours Downstairs. So don't worry. We haven't forgotten about you. Thanks so much to everybody who is still supporting us on Patreon, as well as everybody who has been listening to Red All Over, my other podcast. It is really awesome to have all of you guys around. And this is the first in what I hope will be all kinds of really great content for you to enjoy. And one thing I was noticing on the Patreon today, we are about $100 away from doing our special Five Maggie Smiths jam, where we will cover five different films starring Maggie Smith that we haven't covered yet. So if you would like that to happen, get on over to Patreon and start a donation or up your donation. Or uh, I think that's the only, those are the only two things that will get us to that goal. But uh, you know, a third thing, do a third thing. If you feel like it, if you can figure it out, I totally support that. Um, And we know we owe you guys some call the midwife content. We have been trying to figure out what the most reasonable way to go about that is. And so I think that's all the nuts and bolts stuff. I know Amy had some, Amy had a whale cast up. It wasn't too long ago that she had a whale cast up. I don't know. Listen, also, I really hope that before in this, I didn't call Amy Tom. 
because that means I will have to edit this. And again, in the words of the great L. Ron Hubbard, as portrayed by Andy Daly on the Dead Authors podcast, first draft, last draft, get it out the door. So Amy, if I misgendered you, misnamed you, I apologize. Um, but you know, we're all we're all doing the best we can. Although honestly, anytime I say that, or like I hear people say that, like, oh, we're all just doing the best I you know, we're all just doing the best we can. Uh, we're not uh, we're not doing great uh, as a society, I don't think. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about The Royal We, my crazy favorite book. So let's get started, shall we? So the, the prologue of The Royal We, or I guess let's go back even farther. So the premise of The Royal We is that it's sort of like real life fan fiction about Prince William and Kate Middleton except if Kate Middleton was from Iowa. Now, this all seems kind of crazy, except I guess when you consider it uh, that Prince Harry might be marrying an American. So I weirdly, like I'm not a big royals follower, you guys. Like I really, I really can't explain why I love this book so much because I am not a big royals follower. Like I don't have... A particular issue uh, with all of this, but uh, you know, it's just it's not something that I keep up on. Uh, I, you know, I've always enjoyed what the Fug Girls, Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan, write about the Royals, and you know, they have their own sort of like characters for the Royals. But I've just never, I've never cared. It's bananas. At any rate, Prince Harry maybe marrying Meghan Markle, so we'll see how much of that maybe lines up with what happens in this book um, where an American is marrying a royal. See, now I have to Google and make sure that Meghan Markle is American because, look, I just, you know, I just want to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, you all. It's just super important. Okay, yes, she is an American actress, model, and humanitarian from Los Angeles. Okay, great. Oh, she was in Fringe, which I never watched. Okay, so Meghan Markle might be marrying Prince Harry. We will keep you posted as events warrant. So the concept here is that not only does the second in line for the British throne marry an American or marry a commoner. She's also an American. And in order to do this uh, and kind of pull off this hat trick, the Fug Girls change history in that they they have you know there's up to a certain point british history flows as you know as we know it uh but then there is a split in the reality and so they have a totally different bloodline so rather than the windsors who are the current royal family in great britain you have the lions family and that winds up having there was a uh queen victoria 2 uh, rather than just having, you know, the one. And uh, you wind up with characters in the quote-unquote present day that are very similar to characters, characters, to the actual people in the royal family. Um, so you have Queen Eleanor is the stand-in for Queen Elizabeth. And she was married to a guy... Uh, I don't even, I can't even read this. I'm looking at the fan. They have a family tree, which is handy. 
Um, here we go. Her- Henry Nicholas Vane. He was the seventh Duke of Cleveland, according to this family tree. And then uh, there is Agatha. George, uh, sorry, Georgina Elizabeth Agatha was the sister of Queen Eleanor. And she dies, I believe, before the action of the novel takes place. So then you get into the kids. Uh, the eldest daughter is Agatha Mary Eleonora. Uh, she is married to this guy named Julian, who is described in the book as a bounder. They have a son named Nigel, uh, who is like addicted to coke and stuff. Uh, we'll get to that later. Oh, wow. And their last name is De La Pour, uh, which is funny because I don't believe that ever comes up in the book, even though it is clearly stated in the House of Lions family tree. Then you have Richard, the Prince of Wales, who is the, uh, he's the analog to Prince Charles, who is married to Lady Emma Summers, who is the analog to Princess Diana. And then their children are uh, Nicholas and Frederick. Nicholas is the Prince William stand-in, and Frederick is the Prince Harry stand-in. And then there's a third son of Queen Eleanor, uh, Edwin George Albert. Uh, Some of his info comes in as plot in the play, in the play. In the book. Listen, guys, I've never done this solo before. It's bananas. I don't know. You know, I hope this is fine. I hope it's okay. I hope you're having a good time. Uh, I don't mean to be so needy. I just walked a lot today. So I'm tired. But it's okay. You know, I'm going to do more of this tomorrow. I'll have walked less. I'll have had more water. We're all doing great. So now that we have settled sort of the uh, the basics and sort of given you the the general lay of the land we dive right in in medias res as they say in english class with the prologue so we meet our heroine whose name is bex porter rebecca porter and she is about to get married to prince nicholas and it's you know uh, you're like, oh, wow, that's exciting. But she is getting a lot of really perturbing phone calls and texts from a person who is as yet unidentified. So she sees in this room, you know, there's a lot of, you know, fancy royal stuff. Apparently, Queen Eleanor has just sort of cleaned out this suite to change it into bridal headquarters at the Goring Hotel in London. And she spots a photo uh, that's sort of out of place. And it's a photo of her and her twin sister, Lacey, who is with Cinderella. And she's wearing sort of like Lacey is wearing sort of princess gear at Disney World. And then Bex is wearing uh, shorts and Tevas. And she's just like not even about this whole Cinderella situation. So... You know, she's kind of going through like, oh, this is like very ironic. You know, I don't really like this whole princess thing as a child. And now I'm about to become a princess. And she talks a little bit about how she has to get armpit Botox to avoid headlines like the Duchess of Sweatshirt. And so it seems that her sister Lacey has dragged this out uh, and put it in the room for her. And then she gets a text that's in all caps. So, you know, it's serious that says you can't pretend nothing happened again. We have no idea what is going on here. And then her mom calls and she's looking for Lacey, her sister. And 
Bex is like, I have no idea where she is. We're kind of like in a fight. And her mom's like, apologize. And she's like, you apologize. Not really. So then uh, we get the Bex Brigade who gets introduced here, which is sort of her staff uh, that is in charge of keeping her on schedule. And in this case, obviously making sure that the wedding goes off without a hitch. Her personal secretary is Scylla, who we find out, if not here, then later. She's also one of her best friends who she's known since her college days at Oxford. Um, so, you know, she kind of waxes philosophical a little bit about, about how much she loves Nick and how she's missed him because they have been, you know, like forced to be in like separate bedrooms leading up to the wedding. So then Lacey finally shows up. And she is like, oh, like I did this thing. And Bex is like, uh, yeah, you know, guess what? You've like maybe ruined my life. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on. So they jump straight from that into part one of the book proper, which is the story of how Bex Porter went to Oxford University and fell in love with Prince Nicholas Wales. Prince Nicholas Lyons. I'm always like really confused when it comes to royals because I believe like when they're referring to themselves, like, you know, however they might have shown up on the roles at school would have been like Nicholas Wales, Frederick Wales versus, you know, Prince Nicholas of lions it's very again it's very confusing royalty man it is deliberately obtruse obtruse abstruse i'm trying to say stuff so chapter one overall is sort of the meat cute of bex and nick and the intro of their ragtag band of friends who really aren't that ragtag i mean honestly you know they're all members of you know very sort of plummy British classes who have been deemed acceptable companions for the crown prince. But, you know, we uh, we don't need to worry about that. We're not going to get too deep into the classism because uh, when you're talking about the royals, what's the point? This is this is a very pro-royals book or it's just, it's, you know, it's apolitical as far as that's concerned. So we will just allow it to be apolitical. We will criticize certain things as they come up. But generally speaking, uh, you know, it's very chilled out. This is going to be a whole chilled out thing. So we're also introduced to this sort of narrative device that gets introduced over and over, which is the book The Bexicon by Aurelia Montpassant, which is the highly, highly fictionalized account of Nick and Bex's courtship. And the the Bexicon says that they met uh, at a pub called the King's Arms, which we later find out that Nicholas never likes to go anywhere that has like a royal name because it makes him self-conscious. But it's saying, oh, you know, Bex wasn't a drinker and she was very quiet and humble. But uh, what actually went on is that Bex arrives at Oxford and uh, she meets this guy. This guy like lets her in and takes her up to her room, and she, you know, makes a joke about some, you know, portrait of some royal, royal forebear having syphilis. And then by the time she gets to her room, you know, she kind of gets her stuff put down, and she meets Scylla, who later becomes her personal secretary. And Scylla's like, "Hey, uh, that dude's the prince." And Bex is like, "Zuh." So she's like, "Oh, that's that's embarrassing. I just said that you're." you know, that your great, 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 whatever had syphilis. Um, but Nick seems to be very charmed by this. He likes the fact that she didn't 
recognize him or, or, you know, kind of try anything because his entire life is sort of like circumscribed by the fact that everybody wants a piece of him, you know, Britney Spears style. Um, and we get some background a bit on Bex and Lacey. So Lacey applied to Cornell University and Bex just sort of followed her and she's studying, I believe, art history as her major and Lacey is doing pre-med. And so Bex was like, oh, I'm going to apply at Oxford. I want to go draw all of the architectures. And she got it and she went. But it's the first time that she and Lacey have been separated, really for the first time in their lives. Although there's a couple, any look, there's a couple things. I've read this so many times where I'm like, well, actually on page, you know, 47, you say that they had never been apart for more than eight hours. But then you talk about these long car rides that she'd take with her dad to go to like the ball game. Look, I have probably read this book too much for any healthy person. However, uh, point being Lacey and Bex attached at the hip. Um, so she Bex is in Pembroke college, which is across the street from Christ church college, uh, which is one of the buildings in the, uh, kind of amalgam that makes up Hogwarts in the Harry Potter movies. So uh, more more trivia for you. This is our first sort of introduction to Gaz. She just mentions Gaz in passing, who's another friend of our of ours. I'm I'm part of this group. I live in this book now. So after she's met Nick and kind of embarrassed herself, but also kind of, you know, had this meet cute, she goes down to VJCR which stands for something, I'm sure, something common room? I don't know. So it's basically where everybody goes to drink. And this is something I don't have experience with because I did not go to an appropriately fancy college. But I feel like I've heard of this happening at places like Harvard and Princeton, where they actually have, you know, sort of a club for these individual colleges or dining clubs or, you know, whatever they're called. And, you know, the there's somebody who is, in this case, is called the bar czar, but, you know, they're responsible for stocking everything and, you know, you do pay uh, for drinks and everything. But it's just, you know, somewhere very close to home that you can have a pint or a G&T with your pals. So she sees, you know, that Nick is there and she's like, oh, didoy, like, of course it's this guy. But um, she meets everybody, Scylla introduces her. Uh, because they all live on the same floor. And so Gaz is is properly introduced here. Uh, this is a bit of a lazy character description, in my opinion. But she says that he had a kind face, bulbous nose, freckles, and a thick tuffet of orange-red hair. Rather like Ron Weasley, but with scruff and a round, compact belly that was either the product of a lot of lager or his ineffective attempts to draw in enough air to appear taller than five foot six. Possibly both. So we've got Gaz, who's sort of our comic relief guy. He's always cracking jokes. And uh, Scylla has auburn hair, in case anybody is wondering. She is from Yorkshire. So she is constantly talking about that and also these sort of outlandish stories about her ancestors. Oh, it's also worth mentioning that Gaz's actual given name is Garamond after the font, because his grandfather invented the font Garamond. Uh, so just FYI, that is why his name is Gaz. There's also a woman named Joss who's got this sort of 
Uh, I believe Bex describes it as a half-hearted punk look. I think her hair is pink at this point. And she is like a fashion designer. And apparently her previous model was a woman named Ceres, who is also on their floor and is also Nick's ex. I'm sure this information won't come in handy at all in the future. And then there's a guy named Clive, and he is studying journalism. And his entire family are, was well, he has several brothers who are all uh, rugby players. And his dad is really good friends with Prince Richard, who is Nick's dad. So these are all people who've kind of been uh, friends with Nick for quite a long time. And then there is one more person who's sort of part of the inner circle, who is Beatrix Larchmont. Smythe Kent, who is called Lady Bollocks by those that know her. I think I messed up her name. I was trying to remember it by uh, memory. I'll figure it out when it comes up. Lady Beatrix Larchmont Kent Smythe. I think I just mixed them up. So she's called Lady Bollocks because of her initials and also because she can be a bloody load of it according to Gaz. So uh, she is a very patrician person. She has, uh, you know, sort of these perfectly manicured eyebrows. And I always imagine her as a brunette. I believe that is accurate. Um, If I find proof to the contrary, I will let you know because we're going to do several of these. Um, so, you know, the gang, the gang are all hanging out and, you know, Bex is getting to know everybody and Clive is sort of, um, you know, giving Bex the, the 411, as the kids used to say, on everybody at the college, including India Bolingbroke, who is Nick's new girlfriend. And she's the daughter of Prince Richard's second cousin twice removed. And uh, basically, you know, she's the person that Nick is officially dating, but there are just dozens and dozens of people trying to get in on his good side because he is the prince, which always I just find amazing. I mean, again, and I think it's something maybe you have to be part of the British aristocracy to really understand that kind of, you know, sort of attempt at social climbing in that way. I mean, I understand it in sort of like an American capitalist point of view where it's like, oh my gosh, I want to stay on this person's good side because there could be this opportunity that opens up for me. And I suppose it's the same thing. It just seems so strange because it's not like, it's it's not like the royal family does much apart from being these sort of figureheads. And we'll get into that a little bit more in terms of sort of what they actually do and, you know, whether that makes sense. Uh, and, you know, your mileage may vary. So you can totally tweet at me at Kelly Anakin and we can talk about it because literally all I want to do is talk about this book. So at any rate, uh, we find out that uh, Lady Bollocks is very protective of Nick and she's always sort of looking out for him because their mothers were best friends uh, when they were growing up. So she has known Nick, I believe, the longest out of everyone in the group. Uh, we do find out later that Scylla's father was one of Prince Richard's uh, personal protection officers. So like his secret service, essentially. And um, so, you know, everybody has the sort of connection. Oh, Joss's father is the Queen's gynecologist, which is the source of a lot of jokes throughout the course of this book. This book is very funny. I have not said that that much, but it is really funny. It's the kind of book that is just like, it makes me laugh out loud, even though I've read it 47 times or whatever at this point. So Bex declares that she, you know, is not interested in uh, getting into some sort of uh, 
relationship with Nick and uh, she's just here to have fun in England and, you know, spend her semester abroad or her year abroad. And she winds up leaving the JCR with Clive, who is supposedly very attractive. He's got very dark hair, glasses. Uh, he's got kind of a Clark Kent thing going, I believe it said at some point. So that's the first chapter. You know, we've got all of the players. Uh, you know, these are the folks that we're spending the majority of this book with. And the book is so much longer than you would think. It's uh, 500 pages, which to me is kind of bananas for, um, they call these a new adult novel now, I think. It's not quite a romance novel. I think it's this sort of attempt to be sort of a bit hipper. Um, there's a podcast that goes into all this in a lot more detail. I know the website is called Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and I can never remember what the name of the podcast is. Uh, maybe it is Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Anyway, they go into a lot more detail just about that entire genre. Um, so if you are into sort of the uh, new adult fiction or you like romance novels or anything like that, that is a really great resource to check out. I have not kept up with them, um, but I was keeping up with them for a while and they're delightful. Maybe I will go back to that podcast. In chapter two, we get a little bit more context on Lacey and we get a little more context on Lacey and Bex. And so Lacey is sort of the type A one and Bex is just way more laid back and just kind of does whatever. Um, so they have a phone date. Their, their sort of uh, tradition is to get together and talk about, you know, boys and stuff over a plate of crackers and cheese. So they're trying to do that, you know, the best they can via Skype. Um, so she's talking about hooking up with Clive and Lacey, of course, wants a whole lot more uh, information about Prince Nicholas. And uh, incidentally, it was wrong. It's not page 47. It's page 26 that it is stated that the longest Lacey and Bex have been apart is eight hours. I will be on the lookout for the thing that disproves this. Um, but anyway, so Lacey is very, uh, you know, kind of full steam ahead and she's always making the decisions and, uh, you know, they, they were voted a cutest couple in their high school class. And, you know, they, they frequently have difficulty dating, uh, because, you know, the guys that they date, are annoyed by how much time they spend together. Uh, Bex dumped her freshman year boyfriend at Cornell because he called Lacey the Trojan uh, because she was around so much that she was the world's most effective birth control. Um, so they talk a bit about how weird it is like Lacey's not there and Bex kind of keeps turning to kind of tell her things and she's not there. Um, so this is that whole like twin thing, which I've heard about. Uh, obviously have no experience with. I don't have a twin. But apparently, you know, it's pretty intense. And uh, we'll get into how intense it can get in this book. So we find out that Ceres Whitehall de Valenci uh, decided to spend a year at Cornell. Uh, so there was like literally a one-to-one -one replacement where Ceres left and then Bex moved in on this floor. I don't know how realistic that is uh, in terms of housing arrangements at Oxford. I don't know if anybody listening has any kind of... Uh, context on that it just seems highly suspect to me that they would swap out like that however at the same time uh, you know I uh I realize this is a book 
And we need to put Bex in proximity to the prince if we're going to get to this royal wedding that we were preparing for in the prologue. We get a little bit more information. So there are uh, four PPOs, personal protection officers, who live in the eighth room in the hallway uh, to keep an eye on Nick at all times. There is PPO Stout, who is stout. PPO Twiggy, who is not stout. PPO Popeye, who has spinach in his teeth. And then there's PPO Furrow, who has a frown. Uh, we don't get a whole lot more context on these guys beyond their physical descriptions, but they are pretty frequently around. So we'll be hearing more from these guys. Um, and, you know, they're all married with kids, but then, you know, many nights of the week, they have to sleep at Oxford to keep an eye on the heir to the throne. NBD. I'm sure it pays great. So we find out that Lacey has been historically a royals watcher and that when Bex got uh, accepted to Oxford, you know, she has like this commemorative issue of people. Uh, you know, she's got all these pictures of Nicholas as a kid, all these things. And, you know, Lacey knows more of these sort of tabloid rumors than than Bex does. Um, there's a rumor that he has a wooden leg and that's why he doesn't play polo. There's all these things. So Lacey is like, begging Bex to go make out with him. And we get a flashback to a story uh, where Bex sees Nick again. She is uh, coming out of the bathroom, out of the shower, and she did not remember to bring uh, her robe and towels. They're back in Iowa. And <laughs> I, d- I don't know. I don't know how this happens. I don't know how you don't just like go to somebody and be like, hey, can I please just have a towel? She has gotten one from the school, um, but it's pretty small. And so she bumps into Nick and as he's coming into the bathroom and just all of her toiletries fly everywhere. She covers him in tampons. He helps her pick everything up. She's trying to like, you know, cover everything up with this tiny towel. Uh, She has seen his legs. They are not made of wood at all. And uh, so he helps her with all of that. And then she's out in the hallway and then she runs into Lady Bollocks, who is wearing her writing outfit and uh, she's like, oh, you totally planned this. This is ridiculous. And Bex is just like, hi, like, can I just like meet you? And uh, B, uh, B is sort of what people call her to her face rather than Lady Bollocks because she'd be probably annoyed if they called her that to her face. But she tells Bex that he will never marry an American. And, you know, Basically, Bex is just like, this girl is completely bananas. Of course, I don't want to marry this guy. You know, famous last words, whatever. So they're all, you know, they're all uh, working their way through all the pubs around Oxford. They go to a place called The Bird. And you kind of get this sense of all of the just totally bizarre names for pubs in Britain. Uh, This particular pub is actually called The Eagle and Child. But then people nicknamed it The Bird and Baby. And then they shortened that to The Bird. And then we get into the concept of Cockney rhyming slang. (laughs) So just, uh, you know, British weirdness. And I do like that bit of it. Just sort of the... American bewilderment at sort of the Britishness of it all, which is a good time. So at this pub, we get a sense that not only are Nick's friends his friends, but they act as sort of a uh, deflector of sorts and keeping people, you know, sort of out of his sphere if their intentions aren't pure uh, in terms of just you know, wanting to be friends or, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, 
Bex is sort of amazed by the sort of efficiency that <laughs> they have here. And uh, Bex also notices that Nick doesn't get too drunk. He's just sort of hanging out. Uh, but Bex is quite a drinker. So apparently she's now drafted into their annual competition called The Glug. Uh, we also find out that Joss is dating a guy named Tank. He is sort of the guy that she's trying to impress with her punk look. Uh, we're introduced to a character named Penelope Six Names, who's like some kind of cousin, like very distant cousin of Nick's. And she comes up semi-frequently, but she's, you know, kind of an idiot. Uh, as far as, you know, the group is concerned, everybody gets excited and sings Wannabe, which I'm all about. Everybody loves the Spice Girls. So then, you know, we get a little bit more context on Bex making out with Clive. I enjoy this because, you know, everybody talks about Clive. You know, he's attractive or whatever. But Bex says that uh, he, when making out with him, he fixated on a weird numerical pattern. Nine turns of the tongue clockwise and nine turns the other way. Like he'd memorized instructions from a magazine. That seems completely plausible. I totally like know this kind of guy uh, who's like, okay, I'm going to like read this article. I'm going to do everything correctly and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, you know, but she, she's fine. You know, she's like, hey, this is great. I'm just like, you know, hanging out with this guy. We're, we're hooking up. Life is good. That's what college is for, right? So uh, <laughs> the uh, in chapter three, Nick and Bex wind up having their their own sort of secondary meet cute where they actually really get to know each other. There's a bit of an issue because there's constantly all of this tabloid speculation on what's going on with the Royal family. And we'll get into that a bit in a slightly later chapter here. Um, but apparently uh, there's, there's sort of these rumors that Nick and his father, Prince Richard are not getting along well. And then, you know, Clive is kind of constantly, fielding the rumors and sort of dissecting them for Bex, um, kind of telling him like what's true and what's not true. And so at the same time, this kind of gives Bex a little bit more of an inside track to report back to Lacey, who's like dying to hear anything. But Bex, you know, she doesn't really care. You know, this is sort of to me the first place where we sort of start seeing how codependent her relationship with Lacey is. I have a lot of issues with Lacey later in the book. Um, I would say probably this is my favorite part of the book. I think part one, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with sort of the meat cutes and the new relationship energy without getting into all of the sort of complicated stuff that comes later. Uh, and it's also notable as being really, I think the only part of the book where I find Lacey completely tolerable. Um, I, I just, I want Lacey to be better. You guys, I'm assuming that you've read the book if you're listening to this or you're reading along, but I just, I really want her to be better. This is the only part of the book really where I'm like, okay, you're fine. So we get a lot of sort of telling about how much Bex loves to draw. And this is really my only criticism of her character is that the fuck girls spend a lot of time talking about, Oh, like she's really passionate about art. And I'm like, is she, and you know, it's fine. It's not a big deal. She's, you know, it's not that she's a Mary Sue in the sense that the fuck girls like want to be her. I mean, she's just clearly designed to be the most blank slatey type character possible. 
And, you know, she's almost retrograde in some of her approaches to relationships. Although the whole book has a very refreshingly non-slut-shamey vibe. You know, I think it's very in tune with how young people actually have sex. Young people. What am I? 47? I'm not. But, you know, just sort of like people in college and in young adulthood, you know, how they uh, get their rocks off. And it's not judgmental. It's pretty, you know, it's very modern and and kind of up to date, I think. But there is sort of just like this weird streak in Bex that's like weirdly conservative that may or may not be supported by her character development. It's not important. I think this book was designed specifically to appeal to people in red states and blue states. And, you know, again, it's it's apolitical. It has no particular point of view as far as that's concerned. So we get this scene in which he's like, oh, man, I really want to go running. So Bex is also very athletic. She's, you know, played sports her whole life. So she is like, I'm going to go running and then I'm going to go sketch. So she's running, running, running. Uh, There's a great phrase in here when she's talking about fall and uh, leaves preparing for their seasonal suicide leap. There's just really beautiful language throughout this entire book. And I think it's written better than I think anything in the new adult genre gets credit for. Uh, again, it's this whole sort of like Jennifer Weiner. Weiner? I never, I never know, you guys. If somebody's last name is Weiner slash Weiner, like I just, I need help. But anyway, uh, but you know, just the the whole concept that, you know, these books sort of by women for women that are about relationships get this sort of bad rap in terms of, uh, you know, they're not serious and they're not cool, you guys. Um, but the, a lot of the prose in this book is is very beautiful and more sophisticated than the sort of overall conversational tone of the book. Um, so that's, to me, one of the pleasures of going back and reading this over and over and over again is that there's just really fantastic prose. And, you know, you'll get that in all five parts of the book. So Bex trips over a man. It is Nick. He has come out very, very early in the morning to work a cryptic crossword and drink some coffee. Uh, you know, it's sort of his his only alone time that she's accidentally crashed. And he does cryptic crosswords, we find out, to sort of compete with his brother, Freddie, who's very, very good at cryptic crosswords. And also uh, their grandmother, who is the queen, is a big fan. Uh, but he has a big you know, sort of inferiority complex in terms of he's not quite very good at those. And so, you know, they they chat a little bit about, um, you know, this sort of ritual of his and he kind of, you know, lets her stay and hang out. He reveals that he is not a fan of tea and his grandmother insists that he's not drinking it properly. So he's just pretending. Uh, We find out that Bex has a lot of really important rituals with her dad around baseball. They're Cubs fans uh, living in Iowa. I guess this is the closest uh, Major League Baseball team that uh, that is, you know, sort of part of their region. Um, So uh, apparently in this fictional universe, and this may be true, this is in 2005, I believe, is the first part. Uh, The Cubs have a shot at winning their division and she and her dad, you know, keep trying to sort of go through their their rituals together. But Cracker Jack is huge for them. Um, They get a box of Cracker Jack at every baseball game, which to me is amazing because Cracker Jack is IMO terrible. I was just at a baseball game and I was like, why do we still have Cracker Jack? It's like you took 
caramel corn and you made it bad and you put a crappy toy in it. But it is uh, one of the emotional touchstones of this book. So I will refrain from shitting on Cracker Jack further. Uh, Bex tells Nick a story about how she took the fall one time when Lacey cheated on an algebra test and, uh, you know, kind of talks about how she wishes that she hadn't been so cowardly and, you know, stood up for herself. But, you know, Lacey just didn't know what to do to be, you know, kind of lagging behind Beck. She had no idea. Uh, and this will this will come back. It's foreshadowing, guys. It's such a good book. They got everything. They got words. They got foreshadowing. They got romance. What else could you want, you know? So anyway, Nick apologizes uh, that it took this long for them to actually, like, have a conversation. And she's like, yeah, I don't care, dude. Like, I did not come here to, like, be a princess. <laughs> Again, foreshadowing. Um... But, you know, and, and we get a little bit of stuff from Nick on, like, it's just, like, weird being a prince, man. I don't like it. Uh, we find out that he loves The Sound of Music. They show it every year at Christmas. And uh, they can get in trouble because the queen thinks that the day is reserved for prayer. Although Freddie has advocated that it's uh, got nuns in it. So maybe it's a religious experience. Um Anyway, we find out here, according to Nick, this is the moment that he knew that he wanted to be with Bex. Um, but Bex is skeptical. And I don't, you know, uh, she says he didn't feel a lightning bolt as we sat on the cold ground passing around a thermos and neither did I. Okay, like, Bex, you know, let him let him live his truth. Maybe he did feel a lightning bolt. You were in his head, you know, quipping a dick. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. There, uh, it's fine. You know what? It's totally fine. I just have opinions. I have so many opinions. I am a regular lady bollocks in that regard. Um, something else here that's just sort of strange is like there's a reference to the queen using PG tips to make her tea. And that just like doesn't seem posh enough for me. Like I just feel like the queen would use like loose leaf and actually like, you know, have people make it for her that way. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know what posh people in England do for tea. Um, and then going back just briefly to the artist and drawing thing, you know, it just, it, it feels like the thing, you know, so the Fug girls, you know, they're writers for a living. And I feel like writers or, you know, anybody who's writing a thing, whether it's like a TV show or a movie or a book, they always make their sort of, you know, proxy in the book has this sort of Romana Clef occupation. It's like just a li- like, oh, like being an artist is similar uh, to being a writer. And, you know, it is. It's a creative occupation. But it just like never gels for me that she's really into art. But anyway, it's pretty minor. It's, you know, her career, her career is not the story here. I wish it was a little bit more. And this is what I mean when I'm talking about it being kind of regressive. Like it's weird to me that her job doesn't matter to her at all as we go through this. But we're not there yet, people. We're just in part one. Um, I also want to say, I think the other thing that I just love is there's just this sort of what they call, you know, new relationship energy running throughout this part. We know where you meet somebody and you're flirting and it's like, are we going to, are we going to get together? Are we not going to get together? And uh, you don't know. You don't know if you are or not. And it's fun to go through that. And I think that's part of why I really love this book. And I'll be totally honest. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to reread this and then I'm going to record, you know, each chunk of this uh, after I get through each part. And it didn't work. Like this was like a couple months ago and I just went up rereading the whole book and then I was just like, damn it. So uh, this book is just totally addictive to me. 
as soon as I start reading it, I like, I read the whole thing. And again, it's a long book. It's not like this is just a, you know, a wham bam and you're done. It takes some effort to get back through this one. Um, chapter four starts with a cute fake out where Nick is asking, does it hurt? Do you want to stop? And it's, it's very meant to evoke a sexual situation. Uh, but they're actually just, uh, doing the glug. Uh, so it's this extremely ridiculous, very British game where you have to sort of do something akin to a keg stand, but with, uh, uh, Pim's pims a vat of pims i don't know what a vat constitutes in great britain but you have to drink for as long as possible and then i believe you have to turn in a circle and then not fall down and they go through a whole series of sort of like weird oxford drinking traditions here which i fact checked i fact checked something people because i care about you i'm trying to set a standard for us going forward that we do stuff like fact checking um but these are all actually real traditions i found out the uh merton college tradition where students uh walk backward in formal dress while drinking port that dates back to 1971 whereas the half naked half hour uh dates back only to 2009 and we're essentially told to stop in 2011 so i don't think that they are permitted to do that anymore um and I believe that the uh, Lincoln and Brazenose College rivalry is true as well. So we get through this point where the the team, uh, which is called the Gaz Holes, uh, they beat the Beatniks, uh, who just won a Beatniks team because Nick is the center of the universe, and uh, they're all doing quite well. And then the the final person on their squad is Nick. And he, you know, doesn't really go full on in the glug because, again, no matter where he is or what he's doing, even though there's sort of a uh, there's sort of a pact between the crown and the press that while Nick is at Oxford, they will let him be and they're not going to be hounding him. Um, And if you're familiar with the British paparazzi, I mean, they're absolutely you know, insane. It's really strange because I mean, they're, they're very serious here in the States as well, but in Britain, there's so many tabloids and it's just really some next level stuff. But there's, there is this sort of, you know, uh, they refer to it frequently as the Oxford bubble where, you know, he's a bit freer, but at the same time, you know, he is still a prince And people are kind of keeping an eye on him. You know, if a snap gets out of him being completely wasted, it's just this bad PR story for the crown. So, you know, this kid who wound up having to actually fill in for his brother who got chewed drunk the night before to do the glug winds up out drinking Nick. Um, But the gas holes win anyway, and they win uh, a trophy that is covered in Pim's labels and Gaz was going to take it because his window faces out onto the quad. But then Nick shows up at Bex's room uh, where she's attempting to do some art history homework uh, and decides that she should have it. Um, and he tells her that she should consider it her Cy Young trophy. Uh, and she's like, uh, her baseball's best pitcher. 
And Nick says that a pitcher can also be called a jug, which you chugged very nicely at your first glug. So the mug. Anyway, they're drunk and ridiculous. This is so cute, you guys. So he comes in and finds that she is watching a TV show, which is so clearly based on true blood. It makes my soul warm. Uh, It's called Devour. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about, guys. Like, I... I'm still laughing. Um, And Bex had told Nick that she was kind of missing American junk food. So he brings her all of these like terrible junk foods that he got somebody to bring for her specifically uh, to kind of help with her homesickness. And then he catches a glimpse of devour and a woman is surfing on a coffin. (laughs) And he's like, hello, I need to watch this show. So they kind of uh, start this thing where they are going to watch Devour together. Um, And we get introduced to this concept of Night Nick and Day Nick, where, you know, Day Nick has, you know, things to do and responsibilities, whereas Night Nick is a total bastard to Day Nick. Uh, He does things like watch TV for hours instead of going to bed. Uh, You know, just sort of the concept of like, oh, you know, I'm making all of these bad decisions that I'm going to have to reckon with eventually. Um, and he, you know, has very bad taste in TV. We find out this. I just, again, I laugh so hard when I get to this. I once caught him voting in the finals of a web series called So You Want to Be the Next Real Housewife. It will be a crime if Ashley doesn't win this specs. He told me seriously. Just look at her lip implants. Um. So anyway, so he's, you know, watching Devour and then uh, Scylla and Clive come in and there is something printed in a newspaper uh that nick has said that horses are terrifying beasts that's why he no longer plays polo they have planted that rumor with penelope six names um and you know basically nick also reveals that he's actually just allergic to horses uh he doesn't know why they can't just say that instead of all these ridiculous things but um we also are told here that Gaz is shagging Penelope six names and still is very upset about it. You know, there's, there's very much a sort of will they, won't they thing going on between uh, Scylla and Gaz. Uh, most of Pembroke college has m- laid money on whether they will sleep together or whether they will murder each other. Um, so, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> um, anyway, so the gang is kind of like going out for fish and chips and, Bex kind of intuits that Nick wants to, you know, stick around and and watch Devour. So she's like, okay, you know, I'm going to stay in with you, even though Clive like really wants her to hang out. But then Bex is like, hey, BT Dubs, Nick, what story did you plant with me? So, you know, she wants to know sort of what what the the lie was that he planted with her and she's like very upset and kind of thinking their whole conversation was a test and he gets a bit defensive which i think is fair like you know this it seems kind of reasonable again the sort of weirdness of the way that the tabloids really run everybody's lives in this book it's so strange and he's just kind of trying to explain you know how difficult it was growing up with all of these you know rumors flying around constantly about his parents and um you know bex kind of comes around she's like okay good point you know i'd become a recluse if i you know had to deal with this and this is where we find out nick's mother you know doesn't really come out anywhere so this is sort of how they've gotten around the whole princess diana 
being dead thing um, when, you know, they don't want to, it's already kind of a dicey enough thing, I think, to kind of be drawing on real people's lives for this book, you know, while they're still alive and kicking. So they've, they've, you know, just created a scenario where she's not around um, and she doesn't make public appearances. So we'll find out more about that later. Apparently Nick has never had a Twinkie. You know, they they come to an understanding and they're like, okay, we're totally going to get into this whole devour thing. And shockingly, I'm going to have to stop here because I have to go somewhere. I was hoping to get through all of part one in one fell swoop. So I will either come back and be like, hello, um, this is for real. Um, or I will not. I don't know what's going to happen. I might have to edit more than I was hoping to. Uh, at any rate, I hope that you are enjoying this Royal We situation. I feel like I should have a cute sign off. I don't. I'll figure that out later. <laughs>